Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Murphy, and this month, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary of the Ethics Lab podcast by introducing you to another ethics podcast series called Ethics Lab Essentials. It is a core curriculum designed to enrich ethics committee members. The topics are foundational, and we are collaborating with new lead contributors from around the country. This episode will be on Do Not Resuscitate Orders, and our lead contributor is Mark Repenchek. Next month, we will return to our regular approach with the Ethics Lab podcast, and the Ethics Lab Essentials series will continue as its own separate series. Enjoy. This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. If you make the assumption that this is truly what the man wants, that he did not want to be resuscitated and he resuscitated, then the man receives care he did not want. And that in itself would be uh, not in keeping with good medical care. Today on Ethics Lab Essentials, a program designed for ethics committee members, our lead contributor is Mark Repenchek, Executive Director of Ethics and Mission Integration for the Hospital Sisters Health System in Wisconsin. Mark, great to have you with us. You brought some great guests into this conversation with you. What stood out or caught your attention most? Thanks, Kevin. I'm really excited about the conversation I had with the three guests for this podcast. You know, it's interesting in thinking about the conversation itself, each one of the guests went back to the start of their practice in medicine. Each one went back to a patient or patients that they encountered that in their experience didn't really match what they were being told or what they were being taught in terms of how to approach these complex questions around resuscitation, conversations around goals of care. And you'll see that really come out in the reason why to these guests, well, I think really resonate with our listeners and, and ethics committee. So thanks again for the opportunity. The three guests that are joining us today are Dr. Jackie Ewan, Dr. Michael Rubin, and Dr. Gregory Holt. So in this episode, we hope to focus on three key areas. The first is what to do when we encounter requests to have everything done including cardiopulmonary resuscitation. In situations where maybe clinically, one could argue it's non-beneficial. How do we as systems engage in continuous quality improvement systems and processes that help ensure that the right patient at the right time is getting the right treatment, especially when that pertains to cardiopulmonary resuscitation? And finally, how can we, as ethics committee members, participate in those system improvements based on the type of clinical consultation that we're invited to participate? So let's get started. Dr. Ewan, would you mind introducing yourself and just give a little bit of background? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. And so just to say a little bit about myself, I'm a geriatrician and a palliative care physician, and I am also a medical educator. So I uh, was on faculty at Mount Sinai School of Medicine for several years, and more recently, I moved back to my home 
country or place where I was from in Hong Kong to teach at a medical school here at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Dr. Rubin, would you mind introducing yourself and give a little bit of background? Hi, my name is Michael Rubin. I'm a neurointensivist and a clinical ethicist. Dr. Holt, would you mind introducing yourself and give just a little bit of background? My name is Greg Holt. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician here at the University of Miami and the VA Medical Center in Miami as well. To begin with, uh, each of you really captured my attention in, in different ways on the topic of do not resuscitate orders. Dr. Ewan, would you mind sharing what motivated your interest in this topic? So to kind of share the story that kind of compelled to look into the issue of problems with do not resuscitate orders. I actually wrote this article during my internal medicine training at Cornell. And the kind of background for why I wanted to write this article really started from my experiences during my training in medical school. And, you know, especially when I rotated through the ICU, I was just really shocked by the number of patients that we were taking care of who are really very sick, many of them very elderly, and they were undergoing a lot of aggressive interventions. So they were on ventilators, they were on dialysis, they were, you know, had pressors, had many treatments that were going on, but ultimately many of them did not survive. And I, I really thought a lot of them suffered during this kind of last phase of their life. Um, and it made me wonder, why are so many of these patients full code? Did these patients knowingly choose to have these sorts of treatments towards the end of their life, or did they not? And so I recalled an experience during my med medical school training where I was working with a house officer at the time, and we were admitting a patient from the ER. and after the house officer, you know, took the history from the patient and uh, talked about the plan. And then he turned to the patient and, and said, I have something else that I need to ask you. And it's something that we ask of all patients who come into our hospital. And it's about, you know, in the event that your, if your heart were to stop during this hospital stay, would you want us to do everything to try to restart your heart? you know, or what we call CPR. And so after the, the health officer asked that question, you know, the patient, I think he was a little bit thrown by the question, but he just took a moment and he said, yeah, of course. And, and then the, I think the resident then turned to me being a good teaching resident that he was, right? Because to him, that was like a teaching moment. And he turned to me and said, this is how, you would ask patients about CPR. And, and I recall that conversation. And as I went through my ICU rotation, I thought if this was the conversation that many of the patients had when they got admitted to the hospital and now they ended up in the ICU, this is a problem. Dr. Rubin, the same certainly holds true for you, but it was certainly a different motivating factor. Would you mind sharing what motivated your interest in this particular topic? So a, a neurointensivist is a critical care physician that takes care of 
patients with catastrophic neurologic injury, whether it be stroke or aneurysmal hemorrhage or traumatic brain injury, pretty much any insult to the nervous system that requires that you're in the intensive care unit. At the same time, I have a background in uh, clinical ethics with a master's degree from Loyola Chicago. And so with this, I can kind of combine both my interest in the sciences as well as the humanities. And I think it improves my skills in both domains because often ethical questions come up at end of life when a severe injury has occurred. Regarding code status in the neurologic population, I think it's important to emphasize that the traditional views or implementation of limitations of resuscitation are in regarding people with primary lung disease or a primary cardiac failure. So it may be that it's relevant whether you're intubated and ventilated if you have pre-existing lung conditions such as COPD and then develop a pneumonia. And the question of whether you want to be intubated is based on the expectation of the patient and their health and their likelihood of recovering from such an infection. However, if you have a neurologic disease that, depending on the pathology, may be quickly reversible, let's say you have a few seizures that have decreased your level of alertness, such people may be intubated not for primary lung problems, but because of their lack of alertness. And so in that case, being intubated and ventilated may be a very much a short-term solution while the brain injury or challenge is addressed. Likewise, with the need for cardiovascular resuscitation, often when a patient's heart stops from a neurologic catastrophe, it's because of swelling in the brain, compression of vital structures, in which case cardiac resuscitation has very little chance of success. So I think it brings to light that when considering limitations of resuscitation, it must be within the context of the disease itself, which is important not just for medical providers, but also patients and their families may come into the hospital thinking that resuscitation is something you do when you have a heart issue, and they wouldn't want that, but they never thought, would I be okay with being intubated for the short term if it's secondary to a different systemic problem? The likelihood of recovery from their disease has been established. Dr. Holt, Dr. Ewan and Dr. Rubin's examples both really touched on previous cases or experiences that they had very early on in medicine. You had a very unique experience encountering a patient with a do not resuscitate tattoo on his chest. Although there are unique aspects of that case, certainly, there's a lot of takeaways that you spoke to actually even in the article itself in New England Journal of Medicine. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking both to a little bit to the case, but then also speak to some of those takeaways and how it really informed the approaches that you take both with regard to do not resuscitate orders and clinical ethics consultation. In this case, it was basically a perfect storm that came to our emergency room. The man came in unconscious, initially found to be in, in a state of alcoholic intoxication. 
and they let him sleep it off. But when he didn't wake back up, that is when we got called because they started to note that he was having difficulty breathing and some of his laboratories started to show that he was becoming acidotic. I came down from the medical intensive care unit to see the patient in the ER and we really found a patient who we could not awaken. We could get him a little bit awake that he would sort of react to, to movements, but he would never speak. And there was no way that we could ever assume that anything he would say at that point would actually have been a true thought in his, in his mind. And when you looked at his chest, he really had gone to a lot of work to get a do not resuscitate tattoo where he had underlined the word not. He had put his signature with it as well. And it's large. If you see the picture, it, it encompasses his entire chest. I mean, ever since publishing this, I've, I've seen a lot of these tattoos. I either get emailed or in clinic, one guy just opened his chest, uh, opened his shirt to show me his DNR tattoo. I've been impressed at how many people have these things. But he really went to a lot of work to get this. And when you're sitting there at a man's bedside and you see that tattoo, and now I had to start to contemplate that the man had what we call acute hypercarbic respiratory failure, which just means he was unable to breathe enough to be able to get rid of all the waste gases that are produced from just being alive. And that was what produces the acidosis in his body. It also looked like he was going into something we call septic shock, which is he likely had an infection somewhere in his body. That infection was becoming overwhelming. And it was taking over his body in the fact that it produced a lot of lactic acid, which also contributes to that acidosis, which was also worsening the fact that he was unable to breathe enough in terms of getting rid of all that acid. And what happens when that carbon dioxide, which is one of the gases that we have to exhale on a daily basis, when you don't exhale enough of it, that level goes up in the body and it can really start to cloud your sensorium to the point where you, you are no longer able to make decisions, you're no longer conscious, and, and it's a cause of delirium. Now, when we first saw this and started to find that he was in this state, I wanted to do anything I could to try to wake him up. Here we had a man who, who had these, these, this DNR tattoo on his chest. He had a necessary indication to be resuscitated at that point with, with, with tools that are always involved in, in what a do not resuscitate order would prevent. And we had no next of kin. He had no identification. We couldn't talk to him. There was no, no one came in here with him. He was found on, the, on a sidewalk out in the community, brought in by our emergency medical technicians. And so we had nobody to go to to try to further clarify, was this tattoo real or was this a, a bad bet or, or what? what? What was the, the idea behind that? And so at that was the point where I invoked that clause basically of sorts that in, in times of indecision, you want to choose the, the path that is not irreversible. And once we had done those things, you sort of stabilize the patient in the short term, while now your mind starts to think about the plans for long term. And that's where staring at his tattoo and thinking about having an endotracheal tube above it, specifically if you, if you thought that he went to so much effort to get that do not resuscitate tattoo, that it really, it, it would go against what it seemly and what we were presuming is his ethos, because it I don't know that many people get a DNR tattoo if they don't have some thought along the matter. There is one case report I only learned after this case where a man did get a DNR tattoo as a joke. He lost a bet, which was frightening, to be honest with you, uh, thinking about my case. 
But really looking at the, our patient's tattoo, this was a well-done tattoo. This was not somebody who inked it themselves. You know, to have your signature put on it, we really thought he went to extra effort to get it. But this is where ethics had to be involved because I still have a vested interest in the immediate care of this patient. And I can't step back all the time and just start to think about the different ethical principles that are uh, come into play in a patient like this. And that's why a man named Kenneth Goodman got involved. And Ken Goodman is our ethicist here. He was on call, thankfully. And so ethics got involved and they came down, they made their decision after a good conversation. And we all talked about it. And I think the thing I really appreciated it was there, there are two sides to, to the story. If you, if you want to make an assumption on the, the veracity of the patient's DNR tattoo. If you make the assumption that this is truly what the man wanted, that he did not want to be resuscitated and you resuscitate him, then the man receives care he did not want. And that in itself would be not in keeping with good medical care. But the opposite is true as well. If you assume that the DNR order is not true, it's not legal, and in Florida, we looked it up, it's not a legal document that I could, I could hang my hat on for numerous reasons. And if we were to assume then that it's, it's not legal and, and we don't, or, or that we, we do honor it, I should say in this case, and it wasn't true, then the man potentially dies when he did want to have the chance to be resuscitated. Throughout the night, the man never did regain consciousness or come out of his delirium. His case did start to worsen in terms of his septic shock. And because he was do not resuscitate uh, based on our discussions with ethics, which I full on agreed with, he passed peacefully that night. Well, thank you all. Uh, each of those cases is incredibly unique and incredibly formative. It, it really speaks to the importance of clinical circumstances and the way in which those clinical circumstances inform decisions that you had to make as, as clinicians. As ethics committee members, the pieces that I heard loud and clear from each of those cases, things like a patient's right of refusal. You as a clinician, what, what are your corresponding obligations to these refusals? And in, in the extent to which changes in clinical circumstances always are at play uh, in a patient's stay, how, what does that ongoing evaluation of the risk-benefit look like that's so central to any informed decision-making process? So Dr. Ewan, I'd like to come back to the example that informed your work during your residency. What are the things that you would like to highlight or that you would see so critical to changing the system uh, in terms of delivery of care that would really help ethics committees begin to work toward addressing these types of issues, not simply on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I, th I think from kind of a more systematic approach, if the hospital policy states that we need to be able to identify patients in, who come in who meet you know, certain criteria that we think that perhaps the prognosis uh, may be limited, that they are somebody who have a serious illness, then these are patients that we should prioritize for having a more in-depth conversation and not just about resuscitation, but really it's about sharing information about their prognosis and helping them to understand what might be some treatment decisions that could come up 
for them, that's very relevant given their particular situation in the future. And understanding what their really the patient's goals and values are so that we can help decide on a treatment plan that best matches their goal. So Dr. Rubin, uh, different than Dr. Ewan's kind of entry into this work, you emphasized clinical context and truth-telling. Now, truth-telling seems so obvious, right, um, in terms of informed consent. And yet, it's critical to the work that you do so that patients can make in truly informed decisions. So as ethics committee members, as we engage in this complex intersection of do not resuscitate orders, informed consent, and complex clinical situations, what recommendations would you have specific to ethics committee members and this intersection between truth-telling and do not resuscitate orders? Uh, certainly, a family's level of understanding of the pathology and the current points in that patient's natural history. I find that often ethics uh, involvement or palliative care likewise is involved when the team hasn't had the opportunity to really flush out where the family currently is in their decision-making process. And the, the first mark of that is always, do they know what's going on? Not have we been able to convince them over what we think is what they ought to do, but do they truly understand that this stroke is different than a one that their cousin may have had? That not every stroke is the same. And if a family hasn't gotten to that point, then there's very little uh, likelihood that you're going to help them move through a decision-making process because they, they don't know what truly they're up against. Is this going to be a short-term or long-term challenge? So Dr. Rubin, in follow-up, if you don't mind me asking, you kind of wear both hats. So you've, you've got both the neurointensivist hat and the clinical ethicist hat. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind at the intersection of those two roles, help us as ethics committee members to better understand how do we engage in those systemic changes that really help with continuous quality improvement in these areas. I think also what you're speaking to is a, a turn that I'm also taking in my personal development of seeing ethics not just as an opportunity to give advice or answer questions, but almost as an extension of quality improvement. So the recognition that there are processes that are not always working as efficiently as they should or as they could, and people not knowing to what resource they should bring their observations. And so it leaves someone with a feeling that this is somehow unethical, therefore I should call ethics. When really what they're identifying is a way that a hospital system can improve, and they just don't know how to point that out. Dr. Holt, in your case, and in the piece that you published, you talked specifically about the importance of ethics consultation. Can you talk a little bit more about how that was helpful, both to this particular case and, and in general? It was so relieving to have that further discussion. And, and I, I think sometimes people are a little bit, you might say, reticent to call an ethics consultation at times because 
I think there's some connotations that perhaps if you call ethics and perhaps there was an, an ethical problem that came up or maybe there's a, an assumption that someone did something wrong. And, and I disagree with that because if I have a patient who comes into the emergency room in, or up into my medical intensive care unit, they've got a, a heart problem. I have no problem consulting cardiology to assist me in that issue. And I think in ethics issues, it's just the same, but because it's not one of the sort of traditional specialties that you see always in a hospital, like there's not an ethics ward, do you know what I mean, of a hospital, it, it sometimes is not for, it, it's not remembered as, as a possibility of having it in there. Dr. Holt, as we examine this case and, and cases like it, how would you suggest ethics committees can become more involved in the type of change that's required in their hospitals and their health systems concerning issues related to do not resuscitate orders? So I think in terms of integrating, further integrating an ethical consultation into specifically the medical intensive care unit, where I think we do, we are confronted with a lot of ethical issues over the life of that ICU. When I was a fellow out at the University of Washington in Seattle, we would actually have an ethics rounds where we would have a discussion where we would sit down at one of our hospitals with the palliative care doctors. And I can't say it was necessarily only ethics as much as it was also a palliative care, trying to integrate palliative care. But I feel like it's a very similar dynamic that you, you, we would discuss ethical principles as the palliative care doctors were also involved with those discussions that would happen about once a week where we would bring up a patient's, or a, a patient's story and really discuss then those issues. And I think by adding palliative care and even ethics into it, maybe not on a daily basis because they don't always come up on a daily basis, but I think what you could do by at least having it periodically throughout a month, it, it, would, it would start to influence, I think, people's thought processes, their ability to then consult ethics when it was necessary. And just to get down some of the principles, you know, I learned a lot from this case by just listening to what Dr. Goodman was telling us about the case and really how to think through some of these more dynamic issues of code status that when we really get down to it, I mean, it is a life and death issue at the end, and there is no reversal of that death once it occurs. And the other thing I was thinking about here is I'm, I'm, I'm sitting right now in, in Miami, and I work at the Miami VA Medical Center. And I've had a really nice collaboration with our palliative care doctor here named Dr. Aguiar, where what we've been thinking about doing is start to integrate palliative care into my pulmonary clinic by identifying patients who are most likely going to, in the near future, be confronted with respiratory failure, with, where the discussion of should you or should you not be intubated comes up. It would be nice to have these discussions with the palliative care physician and the pulmonary physician prior to actually getting to my medical intensive care unit. I'd like to once again thank my three guests, Dr. Jackie Ewan, Dr. Michael Rubin, and Dr. Gregory Holt. If I may just summarize a few key takeaways from our conversation today. First, I would say code status should be discussed early and often, especially with patients for whom cardiopulmonary arrest is likely. Context matters. Discussions concerning a patient's code status really need to take into account the clinical circumstances and the patient's preferences. Patient's rights. Where clinically appropriate, decisions concerning code status should either be full resuscitation or do not resuscitate. Partial codes or modified codes are simply not appropriate. 
And finally, physicians' rights. Where clinically appropriate, again, physicians have no obligation to provide non-beneficial medical interventions, including cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The question is, how do we do that best? Appreciation to our guests and listeners on this episode of the Ethics Lab Essentials podcast. A thank you to our lead contributor, Mark Rapenchik. Thanks, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.